The Old Testament reading for today will be Psalm 118, and the New Testament reading will be Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. Psalm 118, Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. The title of this sermon is The Church as Temple, an Introduction. Psalm 118, hear now the reading of God's most holy word. O give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, His steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, His steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, His steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All nations surround me. In the name of the Lord I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but He has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God. And I will give thanks to you. You are my God, and I will extol you. O give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Let us go now to Ephesians 2 and read verses 11 through 22. This is Paul writing to Christians who lived after the death, burial, resurrection of Christ and His ascension to the Father's right hand. This is Paul writing to the church in Ephesus, which was made up, no doubt, primarily of Gentile believers, non-Jewish believers. And he says to them, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you 
were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that He might create in Himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And He came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through Him we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This now the reading of God's most holy word. May He add His blessing to the preaching of it this morning. I've stated that my intention is to preach through the Gospel of Luke, and and that is still my plan. But before we begin that series, I would like to preach a few sermons, maybe five or six, on the doctrine of the church. When we speak of the doctrine of the church, we are taking up the question, what do the scriptures say about the church? What is it? Who belongs to it? What is its purpose? What is its mission? Etc. And these are very important questions, brothers and sisters. There are many institutions in the world today that call themselves a church. And if we consider the word church etymologically, I suppose they all have the right to use the word. For the word church simply means assembly, gathering, community, or congregation. So, considered in this generic sense, I suppose any community that assembles together regularly and for some stated purpose may call itself a church. But of course, we do not use the word church in this generic way. Instead, when we speak of the church, we are speaking of a very specific kind of society. We are speaking of the church of Jesus Christ, or the church of the living God. That is to say, the church as it is defined by the Holy Scriptures. One thing is clear. In fact, I think it is so clear it hardly needs to be stated, but I I'm sad to say it probably does need to be stated today. The church of Jesus Christ is an assembly, a gathering, a community, a congregation, for this is what the word church means. So then when Christ said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, Matthew 16, 18, He did not mean that He was going to build a building, though churches do often meet in buildings, nor hold a service, though churches are to conduct worship services. No, instead, His promise was to build a community of believers who would 
assemble in His name. The simple meaning of the word church makes this clear. And of course, when we examine the Scriptures, we see that this was the practice of the early church. They assembled together in Jesus' name. They assembled together around Him and based upon their common profession of faith in Him. The church must assemble. And sadly, many who claim to be followers of Christ today have forgotten this most basic truth. Church means assembly or congregation. Christ did not come into the world to merely save individual sinners, but to lay down His life for His church. See Ephesians 5.25. And to build His church on earth until the consummation of all things. See Matthew 16.18. And this is why the writer of the Hebrews warned Christians against neglecting to meet together, as was the habit of some. Hebrews 10.25. So this is perhaps the most basic thing we could say about the church, for this is what the word means. The church is an assembly or congregation. It is a society that is centered around faith in Jesus Christ. But there are many more questions to address. For example, who belongs to the church? When is the church to assemble? What are they to assemble around? In other words, what unites this society? I've already suggested what it is. What is the nature of the church? What is the church to do? What is her purpose? What is her mission? There's lots of questions to ask about the church. And I will not be able to articulate a full-blown and detailed doctrine of the church in this little series. It's, it's not my intention. Uh, time will not allow for it, and my concern is in another direction. My objective is simply to say a few important things about the nature and purpose of the church, and I would like to do all of this under the heading, The Church as Temple. So yes, this will be a bit of a follow-up from the last part of our study through the book of Exodus. In that series, we spent a significant amount of time considering the tabernacle which God gave to Old Covenant Israel. And not only did we consider the details of that tabernacle, and how it was to be used by Israel under the Old Covenant, we also trace the theme of tabernacle or temple, beginning with the Garden of Eden and the covenant of life that God made with Adam in that holy place, and concluding with the new heavens and earth which Christ has earned through His obedience to the covenant of redemption. In that series, it was demonstrated that the story of the Bible begins and ends with God's temple. God's eternal temple was offered to Adam but lost by the breaking of the covenant. The good news is that God's eternal temple has been earned by Christ through His obedience to God in the covenant of redemption. It has been earned by Christ, the second Adam. All who are united to Him by faith, all who have Christ as their head and representative, will enter into that worldwide and everlasting temple When Christ returns to bring everything to a conclusion at the end of time. And at that time it will be said, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more. For the former things have passed away. That is Revelation 21, 3-4. So then, having heard all of this, Uh, the beginning and the end of the story of the Bible should be more clear to you. 
The thing that was offered to Adam but lost and the thing that Christ has earned through His obedient life and sacrificial death was communion with God in His worldwide and everlasting temple. This is about the enjoyment of God's presence. This is about beholding God's glory. This is about giving Him the praise He so deserves as our Creator and now our Redeemer forever and ever in the realm that He has prepared for us. And having considered the tabernacle that was given to Old Covenant Israel in the days of Moses, and by way of extension, the temple that was built by Israel in the days of King Solomon, the purpose of those physical structures should be more clear to you. I hope that that is true now that we have completed that study through the book of Exodus. I hope you have more clarity concerning the beginning and the end of the story of the Bible and the theme of temple there, and also the purpose of those structures that were given to Israel in the days of Moses and in the days of Solomon. Yes, the old covenant people of God worshipped God at the tabernacle and temple according to the command of God given through Moses. And yes, a kind of purification was provided for them through the animal sacrifices that were offered there by the Levitical priests. They were cleansed according to the flesh, but not the conscience. They were made clean and upright according to the terms of the old covenant by the blood of bulls and goats, but not before God eternally. But you know that those structures were also filled with symbolism. They pointed back to Eden, up to heaven and forward to Christ and to the new heavens and earth which He has obtained. This is all review for you because we have considered these things in detail in past sermons. Under the old Mosaic covenant, Israel was given a physical, earthly tabernacle and temple. And the clear teaching of the New Testament is that these physical and earthly structures have found their fulfillment in Christ, in His finished work, and ultimately in His eternal reward. This is why the writer to the Hebrews says that the law of Moses has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. And in that wonderful letter, which was probably originally a sermon, the writer of the book of Hebrews insists that it is Christ who is the substance, Christ who is the form. The law of Moses has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. And Christ, in the reward that He has earned, is the form. In another place, Paul speaks of the festival days of the old Mosaic covenant when he says, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. You know, considered in an earthly way, And through eyes of unbelief, the New Testament seems to have things backward. Have you ever thought of this? Considered in an earthly way, and through eyes of unbelief, the New Testament seems to have things backward. If you were to close your eyes and imagine Old Covenant Israel, their redemption from Egypt, the land of Israel that was given to them, And the kingdom of Israel that was firmly established in the days of David and Solomon. And if you were to imagine the worship of Old Covenant Israel with its many festival days and Sabbaths, its priesthood and its sacrifices offered up continually at the tabernacle and later the temple. And if you were to compare all of that in your minds with the New Covenant people of God, their deliverance from the domain of darkness and the worship of the New Covenant Which of the two would you label as shadowy, and which would you label as having form and substance? Are you tracking with me here? 
the New Testament almost seems to have it backward. If we are to consider this through the eyes of unbelief and in an earthly way, the New Testament seems to turn this on its head. Which of the two is shadowy? Which of the two has form and substance? I think many would be tempted to say, well, the Old Covenant, its kingdom, its worship there at the temple through the priesthood, its sacrifices, that is the thing that has form and substance. But when we come to the New Testament, we see that the exact opposite is taught. Considered in an earthly way and through eyes of unbelief, we would be tempted to say that the Old Covenant had form and substance, whereas the New Covenant is shadowy. It's difficult to even imagine the New Covenant people of God, for they, considered in a universal sense, are not confined to one nation on earth, but are scattered throughout the whole earth. And some are even in heaven right now. You can picture Old Covenant Israel, for that land had geographical boundaries. That nation had an identity all its own. But can you even picture the New Covenant people of God considered in a universal sense? We can consider the New Covenant people of God in a local sense. Here we see it manifest before our very eyes today. But considered in a universal sense, it's hard to even imagine the New Covenant people of God. They are scattered throughout the whole earth. And as I have said, some are in heaven now, not bodily, but in the soul. Israel had prophets, priests, and kings. They were visible on earth. Where is our prophet, priest, and king? He is hidden from our sight in the heavenly places. And the worship of the New Covenant is spiritual and unadorned, especially when compared to the worship of the Old. Yes, we have two visible and symbolic ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper, but the New Covenant worship is very plain when compared to the complexity of Old Covenant worship. We do not have a physical temple. We do not have a city. We do not have a mountain. No, we worship anywhere in spirit and in truth. Indeed, to the natural and unbelieving eye, it is the Old Covenant that seems to have form and substance, and it is the New Covenant that seems to be rather shadowy. But the New Testament insists that the opposite is true. Again, Hebrews says the law of Moses has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. And his point is that the form of these realities, the form that casts the shadows backward into the Old Covenant era, was Christ and His finished work and His eternal reward. And Paul says these, these Old Covenant festival days, along with their Sabbaths associated with them, are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So then, the physical and earthly things of the Old Covenant are to be regarded as shadows, cast backwards upon the history of redemption, whereas Christ, His finished work and His reward, which we cannot see now, are to be regarded as the form and substance of these shadows. And I am wanting to say to you, brothers and sisters, we need eyes of faith to see this and to believe this. And I suppose this is my objective in this little series on the doctrine of the church. I will not be dealing with all of the topics, all of the details, all of the nuts and bolts of the doctrine of the church in this little series. Rather, I want us to press a little bit further and go a little bit deeper in our conception of the church. I want us to consider the church as God's temple in this new covenant era. And I want us to work through some of the implications of that. I want you to see 
that the new covenant church of Jesus Christ is in fact the beginning of God's worldwide and eternal new creation temple. God's worldwide and eternal temple was offered to Adam in the covenant of life that was made with him, but it was forfeited by his breaking of the covenant. After the fall, God's worldwide and eternal new creation temple was promised to Adam and later, with more clarity, to Abraham. In the days of Moses, under the covenant that God made with Israel through him, God's worldwide and eternal new creation temple was prefigured in a shadowy way. But when Christ was born into the world, and after He had finished His work by living for sinners, dying for sinners, rising for sinners, and ascending for sinners, He poured out the Spirit, not upon a temple of stone, but upon His people. At that moment, God's worldwide and eternal new creation temple was inaugurated or begun. Think of it. It was in that moment that God's eternal temple was inaugurated or begun. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy and you are that temple, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.16-17. And finally, God's worldwide and eternal new creation temple will be consummated or brought to its completion when Christ returns to judge and to make all things new. But here is where I wish to place the stress. It is upon the beginning or the inauguration of this new creation temple, this eternal temple, the one that is described in Revelation 21 and 22. When did it begin? When was it inaugurated? In the days of Christ. And with the inauguration of the new covenant ratified in His shed blood. We have devoted a considerable amount of time to the consideration of God's temple offered to Adam, but forfeited, promised to Adam and Abraham, and prefigured within Israel. We have also considered the consummation of this temple at Christ's return. In this little series, I wish to spend some time considering God's temple as it is now, in this era in which we live. We need to consider God's temple now, in this era in which we live, under the new covenant. When Christ was born into the world, having finished His work and ascended to the Father, His eternal kingdom was inaugurated. We know this is true. You're familiar with these texts. In fact, when Jesus was born into the world, and as John John the Baptist began His ministry, He was declaring Uh, to, To everyone who would hear him, repent, for the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God, is at hand. It's near. In other words, it hasn't been present in the world before this moment, not in power at least. It was offered to Adam, forfeited, promised to Adam and to Abraham, prefigured in Old Covenant Israel. God's kingdom was present on earth under the Old Covenant in the days of Moses and onward, but in a prefigured sort of way, in a symbolic way. When did God's kingdom come in power? Well, it came in power in the days of Jesus. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is near. John the Baptist preached this. Jesus Himself preached this. 
So when did God's kingdom, His eternal kingdom, His eschatological kingdom, when did it come in power? It came in power when Christ lived, died, rose again, and hear this, ascended to the right hand of the Father and sat down as our sovereign King. That is when God's kingdom came in power. He is ruling and reigning now. We do not await, for a, we do not await a future reign, a future millennium. The millennium, if we may use that term, is here now. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is present. And it will be brought to its consummation when Christ returns, when He judges and makes all things new. We may also use the term new creation in this regard. When did the new creation come in power? It came in power at Christ's first coming. It will be consummated at His second coming. You, if in Christ, are a new creation. So God's new creation work has already begun. God's new creation is already being built, being established. It will be brought to a consummation at the end of, the t- at the end of time. And I am saying that the very same thing is true of God's eternal temple. The construction of God's worldwide and eternal temple has begun. It has been inaugurated. It will be consummated when Christ returns. Where is this temple? Where is it? It is made visible in the church whenever she assembles for worship. That is what our text for today says. Ephesians 2.17 And Christ came and preached peace to you who are far off, that is to the Gentiles, and peace to those who are near, that is to the Jews. For through Him, through Christ, we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. That's temple language. It should pop to you now that we have considered these things in, in the book of Exodus. I'll read it again. For through Him we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. So then you, that is you Gentiles, or are no longer strangers and aliens as they were under that old covenant era. You are no longer strangers or, and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, that is kingdom language, and members of the household of God, that is family language, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Did you hear it? What is Paul saying? Well, if we are considering the theme of temple, he is saying God's temple, His eternal worldwide eschatological temple is here now and it is manifest in the church. The foundation has been laid. It consists of the apostles and prophets with Christ Himself the cornerstone and it is being built up. It is being built up not of stone but of those who have faith in Christ as the gospel goes forward and as the Spirit of God works. Uh, That is the clear teaching of the New Testament. In my experience, which is admittedly limited, we are accustomed to speaking of the church in the terms of the kingdom of God. We may also speak of the church as the body of Christ or the bride of Christ. Sometimes we talk of the church as being God's vineyard, etc. And by we, I mean Christians in general. And these truths are all very important and not to be neglected, but I am afraid that the theme of church as temple 
has been badly neglected in our day. And it's a shame that it's neglected. It is an important truth. It's found throughout the pages of the New Testament, and its implications are incredibly important. Again, I say it is a shame that this theme is neglected in our day because the New Testament makes much of this. If you were to read through the New Testament, keeping an eye out for this theme of temple, I think you would begin to see it everywhere. It is a theme that Christ Himself made much of in His public ministry as recorded for us in the Gospels. And this is especially evident in John's Gospel. John tells us that the eternal Word of God uh, took on flesh and dwelt among us. Uh, It could be translated in this way, He tabernacled amongst us when He took on flesh. Christ claimed to be God's temple when He said, Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. He was speaking about the temple of His body, John 2, 19-21. He was baptized as our great high priest. He told the woman of Samaria, The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Though the word temple is not mentioned there, you can hear that the theme is present that woman there, in, that woman of Samaria was uh, engaging with Jesus about the proper place for worship. Is it on this mountain here, or is it, as the Jews say, on that mountain over there where the temple is? And Jesus says, all of that is about to not matter at all, because I'm going to build my temple in a different way than you are thinking here. Not of stone, but of people scattered throughout all the earth. In His public ministry, Jesus declared the temple in Jerusalem to be desolate, that is to say, uninhabited or deserted, Matthew 23, 38. When He breathed His last, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, Matthew 27, 51. And in His resurrection, He promised to pour out His Spirit as He taught that, as he taught that all of the law, prophets, and psalms find their fulfillment in Him. We have to think through this, think of this pouring out of the Spirit in connection to what God did in the days of Moses as He filled the Holy of Holies with His glory. This pouring out of the Holy Spirit upon His people was the filling of His temple with the glory of the Spirit of God. So this theme of church as temple is present in the life of Christ. It's emphasized in the Gospels. It's also picked up and emphasized in the book of Acts and by the apostles of Christ as they wrote their epistles under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Hebrews makes much of this theme, as has already been noted. And Paul also makes much of it in 1 Corinthians 3, 3, 3-2, and in in 2 Corinthians 6, and Ephesians 2. Peter also speaks of the church in this way when he says in 1 Peter 2, "...so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation." If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good, as you come to Him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That is 1 Peter 2, 1-5. And we have already mentioned the book of Revelation. Indeed, temple imagery is found throughout that book from beginning to end, and it is applied to the church in this new covenant era. The point is this, the church of Jesus Christ is described in the New Testament as the inauguration or beginning of God's worldwide and eternal new creation temple. 
And it is spoken of in this way, not as an analogy or metaphor, but as fact. That is what we need to reckon with. It's not spoken of as temple in in a metaphorical way. Not as an analogy, but as, as fact. It was the old covenant tabernacle and temple that was shadowy, that was symbolic. In a sense, it it, it pointed forward to what Christ would do in, in His ministry and what He is doing now and what He will do at the end of time. But in fact, the church is the temple of the living God. The, the, the form of those shadowy things is here now. Christ and His church are the substance. I think we need to let that sink in a little bit. The church is called God's temple, not in a metaphorical way, but really and truly. Granted, this temple is not a temple of stone. It is a spiritual temple. It is a temple made up of people assembled together on earth. But this does not make it any less of a temple. For what is a temple except a dwelling place for God? Did you hear this? The fact that God's temple on earth now is not made up of stone or cloth or animal skins does not make it any less of a temple. For a temple is simply this, a dwelling place For God and you, brothers and sisters, are that temple. The temple which God made in the beginning was not made of cloth or stone. It was the temple of God's creation. There Adam and Eve communed with their Maker. And the eternal temple, which will be brought into being at the end of time when Christ returns, will not be made of stone either. No, all of heaven and earth will be Jerusalem. All of heaven and earth will be the temple. All of heaven and earth will be the Holy of Holies. For God's glorious presence will illuminate that place. And those who have believed upon Christ will enjoy Him there forever and ever in that place which He has created for us. So then the tabernacle and temple of Old Covenant Israel, which were constructed of cloth, stone, and other precious things, were in fact symbolic of the temple that was in the beginning and the temple that will be at the end of time. But the building up of that temple... God's worldwide and eternal new creation temple, as described in Revelation 21 and 22, has begun. It began at Christ's first coming. Again, you heard it when I read Ephesians 2.22. In Christ, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Perhaps I could drive this point home by asking a couple of questions. One, which temple is connected to the temple that will be brought into existence at the end of the time at the end of time when Christ returns? Which temple is connected to the temple that will be brought into existence at the end of time when Christ returns? Is it the temple that King David's son Solomon built out of stone and precious things? Or is it the temple that King David's son, Jesus, has built and is building, not out of stone, but out of people who have faith in Him, who are indwelt by the Spirit. Which one is connected to the one that will come into being at the end of time when Christ returns? I think we should say that both temples, the temple of stone that Solomon made under the Old Covenant, and the spiritual temple which Jesus is building now under the New Covenant, are connected to the eschatological and eternal temple that will be brought into existence when Christ returns. The question is this, how are they connected? Answer, the temple of stone that Solomon built 
prefigured or symbolized the eschatological and eternal temple. So then the connection between the two, the temple of old and the eternal temple, is symbolic in nature. But the temple that Jesus Christ is now building under the new covenant by His shed blood and through the pouring out of His eternal Spirit on all flesh is in fact the beginning of the eternal temple. The temple of God that is now being built is the inauguration of the new creation temple. The two are not connected in a symbolic way, but they are connected rather in a substantial way. For the true form of these shadowy shadowy realities is Christ and the work that He has done. So there is a connection between the temple of old and the eternal temple, and the temple of the new covenant and the eternal temple, but they're connected in different ways. The old covenant temple is connected to the eternal temple in a symbolic way, The New Covenant Temple, though, brothers and sisters, and do not miss this, is connected to the Eternal Temple in a substantial way. God's Eternal Temple is being built now. It began to be built at the completion of Christ's work and upon the pouring out of His Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Just as it is with God's Eternal Kingdom, so it is with God's Eternal Temple. Both are here now and in an inaugurated form. When Christ finished His work, when He died, rose, and sent forth the Spirit, God's kingdom and God's temple were then present on earth substantially and with power. The new creation earned by Christ has broken into history and is present now in the church. It is already here, but not yet in fullness. God's kingdom, temple, and the new creation are expanding now through the preaching of the gospel as the Spirit works. Whenever a sinner is effectually called by the Spirit. Whenever a sinner turns from their sin and places their faith in Christ, they are a new creation, 2 Corinthians 5.17. They are made citizens in God's eternal kingdom, Hebrews 12.28. And they become living stones in God's eternal temple, 1 Peter 2.5. In this little sermon series, I wish to explore some of the implications of this truth that the church today under the new covenant is the inaugurated or beginning inauguration or beginning of God's eternal temple i think the implications brothers and sisters are very great i think it is important for us to reflect upon them in our modern age where reverence for god reverence for his church And reverence for the worship of God's name is so greatly lacking. Do you see it? We have a problem in our modern age and even in the modern church with a lack of reverence. This thought occurred to me, and perhaps it will illustrate my concern. If the temple of stone that Solomon built were rebuilt in Jerusalem today, I imagine... And maybe I am wrong, but I imagine this, that many evangelicals would flock to that place and would enter in with a sense of reverence, awe, and maybe even fear and trepidation. Are you tracking with me? I hope it's not so, but I'm afraid it would be so, that if that temple, the one that Solomon built, were rebuilt in Jerusalem today, the temple of stone, with all of its features, 
I'm afraid that many professing Christians today would flock to that place and they would do so with awe and even with fear and trepidation. They would have reverence for that structure. And yet, so many of these same professing Christians, if I can call them evangelicals in a generic sense, think very little of the church, of the church's officers, of membership within the church, of the discipline of the church, the ordinance of of the church, and the worship of God within the church. That is what I mean when I say we have a problem with irreverence in the church today. I'm afraid that many have forgotten what the church is, namely the inauguration of God's temple. The thing that we have here now under the new covenant is greater than that of the old. And yet if we understood what the church is, if we with eyes of faith could only see that the church is the inauguration of God's eternal temple and is therefore much greater and more substantial than that temple of old, and if we would only contemplate the implications of these truths, believe them and strive to live according to them, then we might begin to regain a sense of reverence and awe for God, His church, and the worship that is to be offered up to Him in His temple in this new covenant era. I want you to notice that this was the concern of the writer of the book of Hebrews. After laboring to demonstrate that Jesus Christ and the new covenant that He mediates is greater in every respect than Moses and the old covenant which He mediated, He says this, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Do you hear it? You know what the struggle was. He's ministering in this moment to Jews who had professed faith in Christ, but now they're wavering because they're struggling with this great transition that had taken place. Under the old covenant, they they knew what it was like to live in God's kingdom on earth, in what I would call the prefigured kingdom of God. That physical, tangible thing. They knew what it was to be an Israelite according to the flesh. They, They knew what it was to go up to God's temple the prefigured temple there of stone, and to worship in that place with all of those tangible things, the smells and the bells, if you will. They knew what that was, and now that they're in Christ, all of that is passing away and is becoming obsolete. And, and, and here they are in Christ, and they're struggling with this new way. No earthly kingdom, no earthly physical temple, but rather a spiritual and heavenly kingdom, and a spiritual and heavenly and eternal temple. They're wrestling with that. And the writer to the Hebrews is is trying to explain to these professing Christians, many of them with a Jewish heritage, that Christ is greater. Christ's kingdom is greater. The temple that has been inaugurated by Him is greater. Do not go back to the old forms, therefore. Those are shadowy. The form and the substance is here. This was the impulse of the writer of Hebrews. This was his aim. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. The kingdom of old could be shaken. It was shaken many times throughout its history, and it was ready to become obsolete. But we have received a different kind of kingdom, an eternal one that cannot be shaken. I think it could also be said, let us be grateful for receiving a temple that cannot be shaken. And I continue quoting from Hebrews 12 now, And thus, here is his point, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. 
after explaining all of these things to these professing Christians, many of them Jews according to the flesh, he says, we do not have something less but more. We do not have something less valuable but greater in Christ Jesus. Our reverence for God and our worship offered up to God, it it, it should not be offered up with, with less reverence now under this new covenant age, but even more so, you see. That's the point that the writer to the Hebrews was laboring to make. Brothers and sisters, may our understanding of what Christ has done and of what He is doing now through the church increase. And may the end result be this, that we offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple, and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Let us bow for prayer. Our Father in heaven, I pray that we as your people would grow in our understanding of the church. Help us to become more mature in this regard, that we would see the church for what it is, the inauguration of your kingdom, the inauguration of your temple. And as we assemble together Lord's Day after Lord's Day, I pray that you would help us to come together, being mindful of who we are and what it is that we are doing. May we come with reverence and with awe. And as living stones each one of us individually being parts of this temple, as living stones, I pray that we would pursue holiness in our lives. God, help us in this series that is before us, that we would grow in our understanding, change our hearts, strengthen our wills, so that we might live in a way that is pleasing to you in this world until Christ returns or calls us home. In His name we pray. Amen.